this has become such a default to put an NDA mm. in that even plaintiff lawyers themselves are buying into this and being complicit. And I think that mm -hmm. part of the problem I've discovered in my conversations now with literally hundreds of lawyers about this is that lawyers are only just starting to grasp the impact that that has on their client long-term. This mm -hmm. is not a short-term fix. This is a long-term continuing re-traumatization. And I think that's something that a lot of lawyers don't fully understand yet. Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And first of all, this is our final episode of the season. Hard to believe. I think this has been an excellent season. So if you've missed any episodes, please do go back and listen. Yep, lots of great ones. Uh, yeah, but after this, we will be taking our kind of regular hiatus for a while, but we will be back. And today's guest is someone who uh, our listeners may be somewhat familiar with. It's Julie McFarlane. It's so great that you could make time to do this, Julie. It's wonderful. Well, thank you, Dana. Thank you. <laughs> Well, and the reason that we're having you on today to, uh, to join the podcast is to talk about another facet of your life, which has become quite a bit bigger over the last uh, more than a year, I think, at this point. Uh, some people may be familiar with the fact that you have launched another organization called Can't Buy My Silence about uh, non-disclosure agreements. So we might as well just kind of get right into this. A lot has happened that is really exciting. So the first thing that I want to know and that I think our listeners will want to know is how did this campaign get started in the first place and what were your motivations behind it? Well, thanks, Dana. And thanks for this opportunity to update people on the campaign, which we did put out an episode uh, last season uh, with right. me talking to Zelda Perkins, my partner in the campaign. Uh, but as you say, such a lot has happened, mm -hmm. uh, in particular, since the formal launch of the campaign last September. It's amazing to imagine that it's only been, what's that? eight months or something. Oh my uh, gosh, not even a year. Well, wow. officially, yes, but a lot right. of planning went on in, in, the, in the first months. So what happened was that uh, some people listening to the podcast may be aware that the reason that I ended up leaving the University of Windsor was because I had fallen foul of an, a non-disclosure agreement, which they gave to a former colleague of mine who was terminated for harassment of students. And uh, when he went, took with him, unbeknownst to us at the time, a non-disclosure agreement and a letter of recommendation that enabled him to apply for positions at other law schools without disclosing what had been uh, years and years of history of this behavior at Windsor. So I began to get calls from other law schools to whom he'd applied for a job. And I told them the reality of the circumstances under which he'd left, which I'd been very involved in, along with the students who um, brought forward complaints. And as a consequence, he sued me for defamation. And the University of Windsor, despite knowing that what I said was true, um, refused to release any of the documents showing that um, he had been terminated for harassment. I have them now, but 
it's too late now. And instead, I was sued for defamation. And so I have a defamation order against me now in Trinidad. So that kind of really brought home to me in a way that it never had been brought home before, that non-disclosure agreements don't only protect perpetrators and enable them to pass uh, secretly to other organizations. And this was something I certainly was well aware of in relation to the Anglican Church, where I had been involved in in, uh, a lawsuit uh, relating to my own sexual abuse when I was younger. But I had never associated them with universities. And in my naivete, I suppose I thought that universities were better than that. Well, Mm. I was wrong. So well, the University of Windsor basically hid behind that NDA, right? And used that as the right. reason why they wouldn't back you up. Right, exactly. Even though they knew that what I was saying was true. Mm-hmm. Was true, yeah. So I met Zelda, you can call it meet, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> where all the best people meet these days. <laughs> I had not been aware that she was from the UK. I was very much aware of her work and her courage coming forward to break her NDA with Harvey Weinstein, which blew this whole issue open in 2017. But I think I just assumed that she lived in Hollywood or something. I didn't realize that like me, she was originally from the UK. So we connected and we arranged to talk. And pretty much right away, really, we realized that there was a synergy between us and there was a passion that we shared for trying to do something about this issue. And so we decided to team up. And as a result, Can't Buy My Silence was born, which is, we describe it as a global campaign because there is activity in other countries, including Australia and Ireland. But our main activity is in the UK and here in Canada. So what were your plans from the beginning? What, I guess, what were your goals and how have you and Zelda gone about organizing this campaign to accomplish those goals? Well, I think that both of us had a very similar sense that what was needed to fix this problem was legislation. You know, there are a number of different routes to law reform. uh, And, you know, certainly one of them could be simply, you know, trying to empower a better informed public so they might push back. But the kinds of situations in which NDAs are forced on people typically involve people who are already pretty vulnerable. They're often people from very low wage environments who have been so bold as to raise a complaint, whether that is about racial discrimination or about harassment or bullying or sexual harassment. And as a consequence of raising that complaint, they are given a small amount of money, uh, very small in most cases, and a non-disclosure agreement that says they will never discuss this again for the rest of their lives. And people, you know, are usually relieved to get out of there if they've been in an environment that was, you know, a very hard one to work in, but at the same time, they need to pay rent. Mm -hmm. And so there's this impossible setup for them in which people will sign on and commit themselves to keep all of this a secret so that no one else will ever know And they don't necessarily understand at the time, in fact, in my experience, almost never, and this is for people of every every level of education, Dana, uh, that Mm -hmm. what they're doing is effectively gagging themselves for life. And so we both felt, myself and Zelda, that it was so important to make it more 
commonly known that these were pervasive. They were not just about Hollywood and movie stars, and they're not just about sexual harassment either. I mean, I've seen NDAs now in cases used to cover up fraud in order to buy the silence of um, municipal representatives. I mean, it's just extraordinary how much they have crept into, into practice. And so we both saw legislation that would make them unenforceable mm-hmm. as the best way to tackle this problem uh, because so much of these negotiations, of course, takes place behind closed doors. There has to be a way of reaching behind those doors and not permitting certain types of what we would say are extremely unethical agreements. Yeah, I remember being shocked when learning about in in some cases NDAs even preclude people from discussing traumatic events with a therapist, exactly, or close family members. Like it's just it's so immoral. Oh, and, the, the terms uh, are extraordinary. I mean, I have been, yeah. of course, in my classic way, uh, collecting uh, voluminous files full of yes. NDAs now, so that I have you know lots and lots and lots of examples with obviously with identities redacted to draw upon and Mm. the the clauses that you're referring to Dana when people are told they can't speak even to family sometimes or to therapists or certainly to any other colleagues from their workplace etc etc I mean they are absolutely extraordinarily draconian and you know the lawyer in me knows that a lot of these contracts are probably unenforceable anyway But this is an issue that we have learned so much about, of course, working with the public at NSRLP, which is it's not actually whether they technically are enforceable. It's whether people know, believe whether or not they're enforceable. And with legislation, um, what will happen is that, you know, lawyers are not allowed to make agreements that are contrary to legislation that will invalidate their insurance. So that yeah. will be a very strong encourager for them to stop doing so. And just to kind of draw back towards the NSRLP for a moment, as you have, as we have kind of jointly discovered, this certainly is an issue that affects a lot of self-represented litigants, because you can imagine a lot of people who are being forced into signing NDAs are people who don't necessarily have a lawyer, can't afford a lawyer to advise them. There is a lot of overlap, but there's also another really upsetting part of this, Dana, that I have to just mention as well, which is Mm -hmm. even where a complainant is represented by a lawyer, this has become such a default to put an NDA Mm. in that even plaintiff lawyers themselves are buying into this and being complicit. And I think that Mm -hmm. part of the problem I've discovered in my conversations now with literally hundreds of lawyers about this is that lawyers are only just starting to grasp the impact that that has on their client long-term. This is not a short-term fix. This is a long-term continuing re-traumatization. And I think that's something that a lot of lawyers don't fully understand yet. So the campaign launched last September. And since then, I mean, I've frankly been blown away (laughs) by the speed at which it has moved and the things that you and Zelda have accomplished in that time. There's been so much. I feel like every time I turn around, there's some other big piece of news, which is phenomenal. So could you maybe uh, summarize those, give us kind of a picture (laughs) of what's been going on? And I don't know if you have thoughts on why it's been moving so quickly. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that we have found the right moment to do this. Mm. I think that we're kind of at a tipping point 
where more and more people, you know, regular members of the community are aware of non-disclosure agreements. And in fact, the two countries that have progressed the furthest so far, to the two jurisdictions, I should say, are Ireland, where the model bill that, that we've written was first introduced towards the end of last year by Senator Lynn Ruan, and it's now gone to committee stage and should be um, hopefully moving forward into law in the next eight to 12 months. And also in Prince Edward Island, Canada. And in both those places, what we had was this, you know, incredibly motivated politician in, in Prince Edward Island. It's the deputy leader of the Greens, Lynn Lund, who just like the senator in Ireland was hearing from her constituents that they had been made to sign these NDAs. So it was really coming from the grassroots. And I think that what happened in PEI was they did a fantastic job of raising awareness, of um, consultations with the, with the bar. And in the end, the legislation was passed unanimously in the Prince Edward Island legislature. So now Prince Edward Island, you cannot sign an enforceable NDA for discrimination or harassment or bullying and abuse. That same piece of legislation is now has now been introduced into the legislature in Manitoba by the opposition liberals there. But in fact, just last week, the Minister of Justice for the government has sent the issue to the Manitoba Law Reform Commission, which is usually a sign that the government is intending to actually move on it themselves. Amazing. So yes. in Nova Scotia, the legislation has been also introduced by one of the opposition parties, but I have a meeting in the next week with the Minister for Women in Nova Scotia, who is clearly a very strong supporter of initiatives to try to uh, increase justice for people who've experienced uh, gender-based violence. And of course, this extends further than that, but it includes people in that situation. British Columbia, uh, the government there is looking at the bill. They have policy council working on it. And I've spoken with several ministers there as well. And there seems to be finally the federal government. But mm -hmm. anybody who works in a federal workplace or a federally regulated agency falls within the federal government. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, there's more than half a million people that that would apply yeah. to. So I've now spoken with the policy folks who advise the ministers for labor, uh, gender equity, and justice. And they mm -hmm. all seem to have a very strong interest in moving this forward and amending the relevant federal legislation. So we're hoping to take that forward as well in the fall. That's just and that's just Canada. <laughs> I know, I was gonna say, I also know um, you've had quite a bit of success uh, with UK universities. Yes, that's right. So in the UK, uh, where Zalda has been working on this since 2017, the Minister for Education, who is responsible for universities and colleges, came to the campaign in February and said that she wanted to legislate. But in the meantime, she wanted to go and ask the universities to sign up voluntarily to a pledge that they would not use non-disclosure agreements. And obviously this is especially close to my heart after my mm -hmm. own experience. We've had incredible mobilization amongst students and student unions. And we now have 66 universities signed up to the pledge uh, that I think covers about two and a half million students at, at universities and colleges. And we're just about to extend the pledge now 
This was for England, to Wales and Scotland. Me Too did so much to encourage people to step forward and talk about misconduct in the workplace. And quite honestly, not just gender-based harassment, but all yeah. kinds of misconduct yeah. have affected both men and women and non-binary folks. You know, lots and lots of different ways in which people are discriminated against and singled yeah. out for bad treatment. And then if they complain, complain. then they get silenced. So yeah. I think that that is something that more and more people are aware of as a mm -hmm. very dysfunctional dynamic that, you know, if you're going to encourage people to stand up and say, you shouldn't treat me in that way, then you can't at the same time say, now shut up forever about it. So yeah. I think that this has become really in some ways quite a kind of simple message mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. that is cutting through some of the legal obfuscation that has been put around this and yeah. just simply identifying this as a really bad unethical practice that's unhealthy for workplaces and unhealthy for people and yeah. for our society in general if we want to take care of one another. I know you've <laughs> learned a lot about NDAs over the last couple of years so what would you say you know now about the use of NDAs that you didn't when you first began? Well I think a couple of things I suspected, but I couldn't really say, you know, mm. I had any evidence for that I feel, mm. you know, I really understand much better now. One is that the vast majority of agreements that are buying, as we put it, people's silence, are for extremely small amounts of money. So what yeah. we're seeing is part of our communities and workplaces who are already disadvantaged and marginalized in many ways by low income wages, by insecure employment, getting re-victimized when it comes to protecting them against misconduct. So I think that's something I had always suspected, but I didn't really know until I started mm. to do this. I think the other thing, sadly, that I've learned, but again, I suspected is that there is rather a lot of sort of sleepwalking going on still amongst the legal profession about this mm. there's an awful mm. lot of well this is the way it's always done shrugging shoulders and right. you know I know as an employment mediator for so many years myself that fashions in bargaining come and go and it's the oldest trick in the book to say without this we cannot settle but I mm. feel like there is rather a lot of complicity uh, amongst members of the practicing bar in employment in particular and in human rights cases as well um, that are allowing this to happen without really, as I think I said earlier, understanding the long-term impact that it has on people. And I think the other thing I'd say that I've learned, which has been wonderful and remarkable, is just, and we saw, we've seen this in SRLP, is what happens to people when they find other people oh, who yes. sadly share the same problem because they suddenly yeah. feel so much less isolated and they suddenly feel like I'm not going mad here because there's yep. this amount of gaslighting here. Yes. Why are you complaining? You got a settlement, just go away now. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, for people who aren't sharing the details of what's happened to them because of the restrictions they're under, but at least to be in a community of people who understand what's happened, I yeah. think that that is very empowering. It's affirming, as, as exactly as you said, as we see so often with self-represented litigants. I yes. can absolutely believe that. So speaking of these folks who reach out to you, what do you tell somebody if they are looking for information? They're being asked to sign an NDA and they're going, what can I do? What are my options? What do you tell people? Well, 
first of all, we tell people they do have a choice um, because mm. often it's being presented to them as a no choice event. And secondly, you know, and I want to be very clear about this. We never tell people they must do anything in particular because everybody mm. has to make their own mind up and everybody has their own particular, you know, issues they're confronting. I know, for example, of a number of cases where people ended up signing their NDAs because that was the only way they could afford to pay their lawyers, unfortunately. Mm. So, you know, everybody has their own situation, but we do have a number of recommendations on our website about pushing back. Sometimes people find that if they push back and say, I will not sign, uh, that in fact they get a settlement anyway, because it's really all a big bluff because it's mm. the side pushing the side that is pushing the NDA that wants to keep it out of the public domain and the courts. So right. you call their bluff back. Sometimes that actually works or to make sure that they've carved out at least some areas in which they can have communications with people. Um, we also have a page, Dana, for people who have already signed an NDA, because there are some things that we have suggested. For example, we have a template letter and a template revised memorandum that people can use to say, I'd like to be released. And here is what my new agreement would look like if you released me. Now, of course, very few people are going to get a, oh, yes, no problem. But what <laughs> yeah. it does is it signals, you know, we are thinking about pushing back. And with more and more media mm. around this, I think that this is starting to bring the message home that people aren't just going to lay down and take it. And I think it's also just an empowering thing to be able to do. And at yeah. some point, what we really hope is not only will we have legislation to stop new NDAs, but there will be so much pressure on people who might otherwise enforce previous mm. ones that they'll just release everybody and it'll be over. And we'll look back mm. on this and say, do you remember when people used to have to sign those crazy NDA things? That was bonkers. Yes. Why would we ever do that to people? How horrible. Yeah. yeah. So finally, what can people do to help if they're interested in getting involved in any way or helping out? What, what would you tell them? Well, I mean, we need as much support as we possibly can get to get the message out. So certainly share following us on social media and we can put the links on the on the podcast page would yeah. be great. We also are constantly looking for new volunteers in areas like writing social media posts. We have a, a, an email account that people send their stories into, and we are always encouraging people to send in their stories anonymized. We will remove any kind of identifying information, but the stories then provide tremendously good material, not only for other people to read, but also for media stories. And we found that media who are themselves, of course, very affected by NDAs, uh, have been very respectful about people's privacy and anonymity. So if you feel that you have a story you want to contribute, if you would be willing to help, we have a whole range of things that we're often looking for people to do. Um, and we're always looking for new allies, new organizations that um, have experiences in their own services that they provide to people and would like to be part of the campaign. Just reach out. And I know people can do that. I know people can find all of this information and your socials and uh, the email and all of that stuff if they go to the website, can'tbuymysilence.com. So Julie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Dana. <laughs>
Hello, my name is Stacy, and I work with Julie on the campaign Camp by My Silence. I help to anonymize the testimonies that are submitted to us and publish them on our website. Not only are these stories important to the campaign as they express experiences to those wronged by the misuse of NDAs, but they're also so powerful as they lend voices to those who have been silenced. I will read a few quotes from a few of the stories that have been submitted to us, and you'll be able to see for yourself the tragedy that the misuse of NDAs truly causes to these individuals. I was not given any time to negotiate the NDA. I tried to understand the processes of a provincial labor relations board and human rights tribunal, but I could not find a lawyer and fell through the cracks in the system. I experienced anxiety, made two suicide attempts, and was afraid to leave my apartment. I never returned to full-time employment, and my 10-year-plus career as a skilled tradesman woman ended. This whole process was horrific. I had already gone a year prior to signing the NDA, during which time I had refused to sign. The second time I went, I had no support, no legal representation, and faced an adjudicator who made disparaging comments about my motivation and pressured me to sign. How much time was I given to decide what to do? The adjudicator pointedly suggested to the respondent that it was in their best interest to resolve the matter that day. And to me, you've been waiting for this day for a while, and postponing it to a hearing will take at least another nine months. You don't want that, do you? She was plainly trying to expedite the process that day to avoid future interaction and further examination to the respondent. I felt silenced, disempowered, and swept under the rug by the NDA I signed in the first situation. When I chose voice and refused to sign an NDA in the second, that meant further public attacks on my credibility. When presented with an NDA, I was told that signing it was urgent, essential first step. The confidentiality agreement still hangs over my head as a threat. NDAs are still seen as normal trade-off by lawyers. I refused to sign the settlement offered and insisted on going to arbitration. Part-time through that process and more than a year after my termination, I was again offered an agreement which I was insistent I did not want to, for fear of the consequences. The agreement included an NDA and financial compensation. Over the course of several weeks, my union rep and their lawyer repeatedly pressured me to accept and to sign that agreement. The lawyers and the union rep controlled the entire process. As you hear from these snippets of testimonies that were submitted to us, there seems to be a common thread where there's pressure from the opposing side to sign the NDAs and that they're not given, the individuals, the victims, are not given any time to process the NDA or what that means to them. Again, I will say these testimonies are so important to the campaign and they're important to the individuals who share them by giving them a voice. And we want everyone to know those survivors, those victims of signing non-disclosure agreements because of harassment, bullying in the workplace, you are not alone and you are part of a community. Please send your testimony so that the world can hear your voice. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Charlotte Sullivan, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. 
First, we have a piece on a legal challenge in Canadian Lawyer magazine launched by a Toronto-based legal clinic, Parkdale Community Legal Services, regarding their recent legal challenge against caps on damages awarded in claims involving the Canadian Human Rights Act. The Canadian Human Rights Act currently caps damages, so that is money granted to those who launch successful challenges based on the act, at $20,000 per person for pain and suffering and $20,000 per person for special compensation. Per Parkdale Community Legal Services, these caps on damages infringe Section 15 on the Canadian Charter, which guarantees equality among persons by reinforcing, perpetuating, and exacerbating disadvantages for those awarded damages on the Act. They argue that the damages cap has the effect of creating a two-tiered adjudicative system by imposing an arbitrary limit on compensation available to members of equity-seeking groups who experience discrimination at the hands of federal organizations. These organizations include the Government of Canada, airlines, banks, postal services, telecommunications, and cross-border transportation, to name only a few. In civil claims that don't advance under the Human Rights Act, the clinic highlights, far more money is available in damages to successful plaintiffs. However, the federal human rights regime is the exclusive forum for those with discrimination claims against federally regulated entities. Per Andrew Montague Reinhold, one of the lawyers working on the challenge, this is really about access to justice. This is about working to create a human rights regime that is actually accessible to people who want to advance human rights. John No, a staff lawyer in the Workers' Rights Division at the Parkdale Community Legal Services, says that the low caps on damages work to prevent victims of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and other more egregious forms of discrimination from obtaining the compensation they deserve and that they would receive in other forums. For example, provincially regulated entities can be challenged in the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, which regularly awards over $20,000 to plaintiffs. And in fact, in 2018, one plaintiff was awarded $200,000. The only difference between these claims and the claims under the Canadian Human Rights Act is that the latter applies to federal as opposed to provincial businesses and entities, rendering the caps utterly unfair. We will be watching eagerly for updates on this pressing and timely issue over the coming months. And finally, and second, we have a piece from the Lawyers Daily highlighting Chief Justice Jacques Fournier of the Quebec Superior Court's recent decision to step down from the bench at the age of 71, along with some interesting comments he provided to the author, Luis Milan, regarding access to justice in the COVID-19 pandemic context. On June 6, 2022, the Prime Minister's office announced that Justice Fournier had elected to retire from his full-time position as Chief Justice, but to continue to work as a judge. He had been at the helm of the Quebec Superior Court for seven years, including the entirety of the COVID-19 pandemic. He oversaw the introduction of a new code of civil procedure in the province in 2015 and a number of landmark rulings. The piece's author, Milan, writes that the COVID-19 pandemic brought the justice system to a temporary standstill, but also accelerated an unprecedented technological shift in the justice system, including the dawn of virtual hearings in the legal landscape. Quebec in turn, implemented an online e-filing system. Justice Fournier told Milan that the first year in particular was very challenging and that he often worked seven days a week and even spent five to six hours on the phone each day while on vacation. The pandemic, he says, forced governments to accelerate the technological turnaround, so that's a plus. 
But not everyone has access to technology, and we have to find a solution for that. It's like having a Rolls Royce and being unable to put gas in it. Justice Fournier also highlighted that the pandemic has significantly exacerbated delays for litigants hoping to access justice and that it has fundamentally transformed the judicial role. He states that judges now must have efficient management qualities, deal with the growing phenomenon of self-represented litigants, and deal with complex matters with dwindling judicial resources at their disposal. The courts are overworked, and the judiciary and litigants alike are experiencing consequences as a result that lead to diminished access to justice. Justice Fournier also notes that any pleading in English, thanks to the recent adoption of Bill 96, must now be accompanied by a French translation in Quebec, which he argues is going to make things even more cumbersome. As courts across Canada begin to consider what aspects of virtual proceedings to maintain in the post-COVID era, the impact on self-represented litigants, the judiciary, and litigants in general who are experiencing access issues and difficulties with technology will need to be very carefully considered, lest these advances become a double-edged sword. So that concludes this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. This is also our last episode for Season 7 of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and stay tuned for Season 8. Have a wonderful summer. 